0: Good morning everyone. Today we're going to continue our series going through the gospel of Luke and we've made it to Luke chapter 14 and I'm going to be reading from verses 25 to 33. Um, I'm reading from the New International Version translation of the Bible. So Luke 14 25 to 33. Let's get right into it okay. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I think it's probably worth, right at the start here, uh, just making something very clear. And it's in my head, and I'm sure it's in your head already. But let's get it out in the open. This is a pretty uncomfortable passage. I I mean, I'd even go as far as saying, probably if you were to say, let's get the top 10 most uncomfortable passages in the whole Bible, this one would probably feature uh, in that list. And because of that... You might well be seeing extreme statements that Jesus makes here uh, and telegraphing right now what you think uh, I'm going to do and how you think this talk's going to go today. You might see statements like um, some, uh, you need to hate your nearest and dearest or you need to carry your cross or you need to give away everything you have and you think well what's going to happen in this talk? What Johnny's going to do is essentially he's going to spend the time showing us how Jesus really is just speaking in wild hyperbole. He's, he doesn't really mean those things and actually For me my job as a preacher today you might think is to soften all those seemingly outrageous uh, commands and instructions of Jesus to make them more palatable for us in the 21st century uh, in England and uh, I think I'm not going to do that today I I felt at every step I I have no license to do that to this passage I'm obviously going to explain things and we're going to have to work out some context and things like that. But I'd urge you as readers, as listeners, to try to resist that temptation because actually, if we do that in a certain way, what we do is something, I think, incredibly disrespectful to Jesus. And what we end up doing is we treat Jesus like a drunk friend at a party. That's what we do. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. You've got a friend comes to a party. Maybe you're a part of maybe a wedding, something like that. And, uh, and uh, they don't know the other people there, uh, but you do. And, uh, but your friend who comes uh, has a bit too much to drink and starts getting quite boisterous and controversial in their conversation. And, uh, and the way that normally runs the situation is the friend stuck in the middle then will spend the whole time qualifying their friend's statements, going, you know what? They're really nice, really. If you get to know them, they're really nice. They're not usually like this. Actually, they, they, he didn't really mean what he just said. Don't take it too seriously, what he's saying. Have you ever been in a situation uh, like that? Uh, I hope you've not been the one who people have been excusing. Um, <laughs> but if we soften and cut the edges and make reasonable what Jesus is saying here, we treat Jesus exactly the same. And uh, you know what? I don't want to treat Jesus as a drunk friend at a party, because he's the Lord of all. I think it's fitting we start with that song today, because some of you might wish, as we go through, you didn't sing quite so heartily, reign in me. This is a Jesus Lord sermon, and this is where the rubber hits the road here, because I want to spell out today, Jesus has what it means to be Jesus, uh, Jesus to be Lord of your life. And I I recognize, uh, for some of you here, that Jesus, Lord, is not something you can say at the moment. It's not something you'd want to say at the moment. You, you come today looking in... Um but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you, you might think, heck, I've come on the wrong week today, haven't I? This, this is a, a challenge. Well, maybe you're sitting there thinking, rubbing your hands, thinking, how are the Christians going to get out of this one that managed to make it through the editing process into the Bible? I don't, I, don't, I don't know what your take is. But actually, strangely, if you're not a Christian today, I'd say, you're not on the fringe of this message at all. In fact, in a sense, this message is designed for you. This is for the crowd, Jesus is speaking, not for his intimate disciples and there's a sense here strange as it may seem is this believe it or not is Jesus' sales pitch for discipleship this is what it is he's doing the hard sell at the end it kind of comes to the question so are you in you do you want to be in you want to be a disciple and uh so i'd say whoever you are today whether you're a christian or whether you're not a christian um I want you to, to give Jesus your attention today uh, and listen to him at face value. Not how we want him to say, but what he actually says. And I'd like to understand what he means here. I want to spend some particular time on what his hearers, what he meant to those people who he was actually talking to, this crowd. And then I want to update it to us. Well, and then what does that mean in our context? And we're going to end with that question. Do you want to be his disciple? Some of you, that's for the first time. Some of you, it will be, do you still want to be his disciple? That's a real question in this passage. So, let's explain it. What is going on here? Well, first thing to notice here is we have a change of scene for Jesus. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been uh, sitting down for the last couple of weeks. He's actually been at a feast, at a banquet. uh, Okay, He's he's been sitting there and he's been teaching about the feast. He's been sitting at the, the, the feast with this Pharisee who's invited him. And it, it, we see the change changes seen here. No, Jesus no longer sat down. He is traveling. He's going somewhere with a large crowd with him. And not only do we know that he's traveling, we know where he's going as well. This is not Jesus on some ministries trip going to places, whoever will have me, who will have the Jesus ministry this moment, We're going around in circles. No, he's in a very clear direction and has been since, uh, for us, January the 1st, uh, for Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke 9.51. Okay, we did it right at the beginning of the year because we've been going through Luke's uh, Luke's Gospel here. Luke 9.51 tells us the direction. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So this part of the gospel, Jesus is on his way somewhere. There's a motion to Jesus' traveling. And it's not only that his destination was set. Jesus knew exactly what was awaiting him at that place. He knew what was going to happen when he got there. He knew he was going to be crucified and he was going to be killed. Okay? And actually, just as he knew where he was going and what would happen to him there he also had a pretty good idea of what following him there for a disciple of him would have practically meant at that time. Now, to be a, a disciple, these words, uh, we know them religiously, but not so familiar with practically how they work. To be a disciple or a follower of a teacher or a rabbi in that time would have meant uh, literally following them, uh, going where they go, doing what go- they do as well, and, and uh, doing what they say. And your fate, the fate of a disciple, would be tied up very much uh, with their teacher. And actually, I think there's a we've got to understand it with passages like this. Jesus isn't being mean here. And in a sense, he's not just being controversial, and definitely not for the sake of it. All he's doing is spelling out as honestly as he could, what being a follower of him as one who was going to Jerusalem to die would entail for his followers. He's wanting to have no illusions. You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Well, this is what it means for you practically. And uh, what he does here in this passage is he lays out three conditions for those first century Jewish hearers uh, for discipleship. Or I think more precisely, we could say three natural consequences of choosing to follow Jesus at that time. And the first one we find in verse 26. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, this statement leaves a little bit of work. We need to think about this. As, as nervous giggles would, would show. Uh, let's be clear about that. The, the the key word here, which is hate. Now, hatred for us would be the, probably the strongest negative emotion and attitude that there is. There's, he's, not, he's going right to the end here. It's the strongest one we have. And usually it would involve wanting harm for another person and wanting the worst for another person. And often it would Lead to action that brings harm physically and emotionally. That's how you'd understand hatred in its fullest uh, sense. Now, the first thing we've got to say here is Jesus clearly cannot be using the word hate in the same way as that. And I'm not saying that like because he's nice, really, don't listen to this bit. I'm, I don't mean that. I mean, from the passage we've got here, we know that must be the case because he doesn't say, does he just, oh, hate your nearest and dearest? Who else are we encouraged to hate? Inverted commas ourselves. We, we hate even our own lives, uh, Jesus says. And so I guess if Jesus is encouraging us to harbour, by hate him, I mean harbour bitterness and malice towards others, and I guess discipleship of Jesus would be a reasonably short affair because it would lead to instant suicide if you were to have that attitude to yourself. That cannot be what Jesus is saying here, so we've got to think, well, why is he saying, why is he using uh, this word? Because I think as we, and many would interpret hate, and they say, well, what hate means here is it means love those people less than Jesus. Okay? Put Jesus above them. That's what, compared to your love for Jesus, your love for those, even your nearest should be like hate. It's a comparison sort of thing. And I, I think there's, there's definitely something to be said for that. But I think we shouldn't go too far that way too quickly because the, the hearers of Jesus at this point don't hear him say, and love your family less. They don't. They hear him use the word hate. And I'm not going to drag out some ancient Greek and say to you, oh, because in the old days, hate just meant be quite nice to, but not as nice as someone else. It doesn't. In the old days, hate meant hate. That's what it meant. Jesus is not intending to sound reasonable here. He's not. If we dilute this word so much that it sounds, oh, of course, that makes complete sense. It's totally reasonable. We've misunderstood Jesus because he's intending to shock. He's using a shocking word here. Whatever it means and doesn't mean, we must have an understanding of what he's saying here, not just to be some sort of emotional preference that you might have a feeling about but no one would notice. It must entail action. That's what he's saying. There must be an action that's linked to this loving-less that is radical and shocking as the word would have been shocking. For these guys, uh, very physically, that action would have been practical. And it would have been leaving your family behind. That's what it would have meant. Hate for them, yes, putting Jesus first, but practically leaving them. Now, that might have been for a couple of months. Might be, I'm following this teacher. Amazed by the authority speaks, says, love, I'm off. Might have been, honey, I don't know when I'm going to be back. I don't know if I'm going to be back, but I've got to follow Jesus. And we know this very clearly from uh, the disciples' own accounts in Mark 10, 28 to 31, it says this, Peter stood up to Jesus, he says this, we have left everything to follow you. Oh, okay, Peter, I get it, you've left your kind of ambitions, you've left your dreams behind. No, no, Jesus makes it very clear, this is very practical. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields... I think it was a better option than the others. I'd say probably, um, and for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. You now he's being very practical here. Now Jesus did not imply to his followers that they had to harbour malice against their family. He's not expecting them to kind of slam the door. Hey, see you lot later. No, there would have been great pain in this leaving process. I would assume in a lot of the case it would have been mutually decided the, the husband and wife going look I, we're going to miss you but you've got to do it I don't understand all of that stuff but you could definitely imagine the neighbors of these crowd members who decide to be disciples the neighbors looking at thinking you know what that guy must hate his family he's abandoned them he's left them behind But for these guys, Jesus clearly demanded action from them. There was an action on the back of a priority statement uh, in it. So the first requirement of Jesus uh, in Jesus' day was to hate your nearest and dearest by not just loving Jesus more than them, but choosing to live with Jesus over them. That was clear in this passage. That's the first one for the first century here is the Jesus. Secondly, what did it mean for these guys to be a disciple? Well, it's to hate your own life, as we've seen, or to put it another way, to carry your cross. Verse 27 Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I mean, it's strange. I don't know if you're like me, but as I read this, I think this is like the easiest to swallow of the commands. Yeah, it doesn't involve my family or my stuff. Oh, it's just me. But actually, practically at the time, surely this is the hardest one to hear. Because all Jesus is saying is, you want to be my disciple? Great. Prepare to die. That's what he's saying to them. What, metaphorically die? No, no, no. Prepare to die. We're going to the cross. This is how crucifixion worked in those days. It seems would be the crucifixion wasn't just about the end product. It was about the humiliation along the way, part of the package. And the, uh, the person who was being crucified would carry their cross to the place of execution where they would then be crucified. Now, obviously, on occasion, the person who was being crucified, as it happened with Jesus, was so tired from the whipping, they wouldn't be able to carry the cross and someone else would be drafted in to carry it. Simon of Cyrene, he did that for Jesus. But notice, for Simon of Cyrene, he wasn't carrying his cross, he was carrying Jesus's cross. I don't think there is a record in ancient history of anyone carrying their own cross and not ending up on their own cross. If you carry your cross, you are going to be killed on your cross. And actually, again, this is exactly what happened to Jesus's hearers. I mean he's talking to the crowds, but there he's got his twelve disciples around him who've already made this statement. Ten of those twelve are gonna die for their faith. And many of them actually crucified. As it, we look at this, we see metaphor, this, a lot of this is very literal. You carry across, yeah, you're gonna be crucified for me, Peter. That's what's gonna happen here. And this is this is what this meant for these guys. Now for the for the crowd, you'd assume many of these guys as well would have been the In the countless numbers in the next generation who were killed by the Jewish authorities, by the Roman emperors, uh, lit up in in Nero's courts, fed to the lions in the Colosseum. He's being very, very straight with his audience here. So secondly is to hate your life or to carry your own cross. Third and final condition of discipleship involves our possessions. Verse 33, zooming on a little bit. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Okay, siren alert for the treating Jesus like a drunken friend thing again. Here we want to see an extreme instruction like this: give up everything you have. We want a quick wait. Wait, hold on! Don't mean everything. That's stupid. Ten percent probably fine. That's probably a fair enough uh, thing. Uh, don't worry. He does. He usually talks sense, but he's being a little bit silly here. I mean, that's that's how we can treat this passage. Uh, just to be clear, if you'd like to take the give everything away as Jesus in a slightly more bizarre moment, you're going to have to do that quite a lot uh, in the Gospels. You scan through the Gospel of Luke, for example. You've got Luke 5. says he sees Peter, James, and John. They left everything and followed him. Luke 5, a bit later, <clears throat> Levi sees Jesus. He left everything and followed him. Luke 12, 33. Jesus teaches about worry. Don't worry. Oh, great, we don't worry. What should we do then? This is what we should do sell your possessions and give to the poor. What do you mean? A few bits and bobs, I don't need more. No, no, no. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Luke 18, a rich guy comes to Jesus, says I'm interested, I want to follow you. It's perfect material to start a religion with. This guy's got money, he's got status. Let's make it easy for him, Jesus. What do you do? Give away everything you have, give to the poor, then follow me. Jesus is sitting outside the uh, temple in Luke 21 and he sees this old lady go up to the uh, bowl to give her money in and uh, he gathers his followers. Guys, quick, come here. Write this down. This needs to be kept for posterity. People need to know this. I've seen a great example of financial planning. Brilliant example. What's she done, Jesus? Has she come up with a new saving scheme or something? She gave everything. It says she had to live on. She gave everything. to have wait, wait. You said this is wise. You said this was a sensible thing. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. This is my view of how to treat your finances. Give away everything she had to live on. This is reasonably consistent teaching of Jesus. And again, when we consider the context, I'd argue he's speaking largely literally here. In fact, completely literally. To follow Jesus at this point meant traveling very light. And in that culture, that meant giving up all you had. Giving up your home, giving up your possessions, giving up your savings, the whole lot. That's what it would have meant to these guys. Now, you might ask and wonder, why is he dwelling so much on how the teaching affected people who lived in a different country 2,000 years ago? We want to know if if we can apply these radical teachings to ourselves today. I mean, that's what we're interested in, aren't we? We want to know how to take Jesus' instructions for us. But I've dwelt on the context here for so long for a reason. Because, you see, if we understand that when Jesus was speaking to his first century hearers, He was after a radical response from these guys. He's not speaking figuratively. He's speaking largely literally. If we understand that, we realize we can't just push these instructions to the side for us and turn themselves into something they were never intended to be, which is a couple of mild platitudes about treasuring Jesus above all things. That's not what Jesus is going for here. Now, as we're going to see, we are going to apply these teachings slightly differently in our context. That's not being unfair with the Bible, it's just we're in a different context. However, the one thing we cannot shift here is if we come to the end of this talk and we apply this in the week and think, I've got something for the talk, and it looks like your normal 21st century life with a maybe little tweak, we've missed it. Because he Jesus expected radical action from his followers and he expects radical action from us today. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, I was running an Alpha course, and a guy comes to me at the end of the course. He's a student, and he'd become a Christian a couple of weeks before. And he had a question for me. Something was on his mind. I didn't know this guy at all. Uh, And he he said to me, he said, Johnny, as I was thinking about becoming a Christian, I, I read and read the Gospels. I wanted to know what this Jesus said before I wanted to make him Lord of my life. And the thing that struck me most was his teachings about possessions. This stuff's radical. This stuff's revolutionary teaching. And I read it, I thought, it's hard, it's going to be difficult, but yet I'm in Jesus. I do want to be your disciple, I'm going for this. And so I made that decision. uh, But a funny thing's happened to me. I've become a Christian, and I've started hanging around with Christians. And I've noticed something strange. Their view of possessions is the same as everyone else's view of possessions. Actually, it's just the same as what mine was before. And when I've talked about it, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, but those things are there, but this and this and this, and I'm living just the same as everybody else. And his question to me was this Johnny, have I got it wrong? Have I misunderstood Jesus? It hit me in the face when he said that. Surely, when we hear something like that, we've got to see ourselves as the kind of Western church in the 21st century on trial and being found very wanting. Isn't a criticism of church center? He wasn't in our church. But you know what? The Western church, ourselves included, have got this badly wrong. Our society's use of possessions, let's look at their basis, is governed by financial self-interest and the desire to accumulate. That's what our society is based on. Jesus' consistent teaching is, give away all your possessions. When people who follow him look just like the other group, you know we've done something very strange to the teachings of Jesus. We've patted him on the head. We said, don't worry about that. Usually he speaks sense when he says forgive. We, I don't think we're justified in continuing to do that. And so let's apply it to ourselves. What does this mean then for us today? How can we get this better in our lives? And I think to do that, as so we kind of draw towards the end, i turn to another passage where this is passages applied to not a group of people wandering on a dusty road towards certain death to a comfortable group of people in a city, a comfortable city called Corinth. And Paul taught it in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. So if you've got a Bible, it will, it will appear behind me. For 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. This is what Paul says. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now, I think the first thing we notice here, I think there's two things here. The first thing is the reason given by Paul for uh, this radical way of life is, must be educated by our understanding of the times. That's Paul's point here. The beginning, it's uh, the time is short, so this is what you should do. The end is because this world in its present form is passing away. And our application of all of Jesus' teachings must be educated by our understanding of our times. And here, I think, is where the mistake lies. We look at the times of Jesus, and we see that those were desperate times. There was like danger was in the air. It was hanging over. The threat of physical harm is, is there on that group of people. It's, it's like kind of the speech you get in films. It's like, are you with me? We're going to the battlefield, the front line. Some of us aren't going to make it out. And you think, yeah, okay, I understand the times. That's urgent. That's dangerous. Okay, we've got Jesus' time. We understand that. Okay, and then we zoom to nowadays, to our times today, and we think, but it's nothing like that, is it? Our times are totally different. There's no threat over my life. I'm unlikely, anything can happen, but I'm likely to harm to come to me today. Um, it's, I meet people who, yeah, they have their problems, but they seem generally pretty comfy in their, their lives. Uh, no one's trying to kill me. Our lives are laid back. They're leisure-filled, and that's how it is. It's completely different. How do we apply one thing to another? Well, Paul's point is this. No, no, you've completely misunderstood your times. Your times are desperate. They're desperate times. Get rid of the illusion of complacency, leisure and comfort around you because time is short. The world is passing away. If ever a a summer has convinced me of this, for all our good weather we've had, except when I'm on holiday, but no, um, this summer's been one that's taught us about the desperateness of our times. Surely, I don't know if you've watched the news this summer and just been left, just emotionally spent. Not, I don't know what to do. No idea how to respond. You've got uh, Ukraine and Russia going on, rumbling. I says, People we know in that situation. How do I respond to that? And before you've even processed that, you've got uh, Israel and Gaza with all that entails. But, but at the very base of it, whatever you think about it, tremendous loss of life, awful situation. You've got Iraq. I don't know where to begin. other things like kind of the 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 riots in america and other things happening it almost fall to the peripheries you think how can i respond to this stuff what am i supposed to do in the light of the world that's around me that's falling to pieces should i put an article on my facebook wall should i change my profile picture to show support of this group or that group do i put ice on my head i mean what am i supposed to do Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not sure about specifics for me personally, judging by the desperate state of my world, but but one thing that I want these things to do to me is to wake me up from my complacency. We live in desperate times. We should live our lives with a sense of urgency rather than complacency. The the need around us does not call for casual, half-hearted Christianity course for Christians who are deadly serious about discipleship and who are willing to make radical sacrifices for Jesus. For Jesus that was the only form of discipleship. Our times aren't that dissimilar to Jesus's times and so our discipleship needs to carry the same sense of urgency that Jesus's first followers had. We've got to understand our times, that's what Paul's saying that's the link with what Jesus said. So therefore how do we apply this in our lives? Notice secondly in this passage that Paul applies it almost exactly the same as Jesus implies it. We see all three things here about this radical discipleship. Firstly, relation to our loved ones. Here it is uh, in this verse. Those who have wives should live as they do not. No. Before we get a bit carried away with this, I need to say a couple of things. Mar- married men, this isn't the excuse to leave your dirty pants on the floor every uh, night and invite your mates around to play Halo forty or 3 in the morning. I'm living like I don't have a wife. No, no don't do that. I mean, I think we can apply this a little broader as well, but, but just so you do that, mums, this doesn't mean just going out for lunch on a spa day and leaving your toddlers at home as well. I'm living alone, like I have kids. No, Jesus is not saying that here, I don't think. Uh, I think, or Paul even, I, I think what Paul's getting at here, and I think this is, uh, this is the heart of what Jesus is saying as well, I think, is that we must not let any of our close family ties, whether we're husbands, whether we're wives, whether we're single, Whatever a situation we're in, we mustn't let those close family ties bind us in a way that will hinder us being radical for Jesus. Now, I've said, I left this unsaid so far, and I've done it on purpose because I wanted us to wrestle with this, actually, but it must be said in this passage. Just to make sure you clock this. You're supposed to love your mum and dad okay I'm not just saying that because my dad's here just drive me up from Woking okay and he needs to drive me back but you're meant to it made it into the top 10 it's like number five okay honor your father and mother it's good love your parents you're supposed to love your spouse as well that's a good thing okay I don't need to qualify that blokes you're meant to love your wife as Jesus loves the church that's a whole lot of love right there you've got to apply that that's important parents kids love I mean I don't need to say anything every teaching on parenting in the whole bible we've got to understand that that's the backbone here However, what Jesus and Paul are doing is they're defining what love looks like for people who love Jesus more than those people. I mean, for me, I remember I'd say this to kids at school just to wind them up, really. When I got married to Gemma, um, two of us said um, to each other before, Look, you know, I love you, but we're making a decision now. I love Jesus more than you. we looked each other in the eyes and said it. It's romance in the Mellor family, you know. It's a great thing. And the, the kids at school, when you said it, they go wild. What? How could you do this? You're an animal. Like this. <laughs> but the deal is that actually it could mean nothing. It, it's just a phrase. I mean, yeah, I love Jesus more than my wife. What does it mean? My wife's there next to me with, with needs. I'm there with needs. Uh, and she's got needs and I've got needs. How does that work? Well, it needs to be applied Practically. Disciples of Jesus make sure their family ties are always secondary to the ties we have to Jesus and therefore if those ties conflict, it's our responsibility lovingly to reject our family's expectations of us. I'm really sorry husbands here, but there are some things that your wives really want in the future and you'd love to give them that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you are not going to be able to do. I'm not saying this is blanket rules. I'm just saying this might apply to some people. It, it, it could be that house in the country that she wants to live in. That retirement planned in the future. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying that for some of you, that's not where Jesus is going. And just because your spouse wants those things more than anything else doesn't mean that you're going that way. If you don't reject those things, you cannot be my disciple. Sorry mothers here. But there are some dreams you have for your children that you're going to need to leave behind if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe it's that good school you want them to go to. We're going to just, if we just move there, if we just take six months of life to reshift and do all that, it'll be fine. Jesus is saying, no, no, I need you to do this now. You need to leave that. That's savings that you wanted to leave behind for them later. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm not saying that's for everyone. But for some of you, that's what Jesus is saying today. No, no, you need to leave them. Follow me. See where I'm going. I'm sorry single people here, but it may be that God wants you to apply this as Jesus and Paul applied it in their lives. Jesus hated his wife and children by choosing not to get married and have kids. Paul lived as if he didn't have a wife by not having a wife. He didn't get married. I can't imagine that was an easy decision for either of them. But they knew that those good things, for what God had for them, would not help them to achieve the Father's will for their lives for some of you, and this is not all of you. It's not Church Central is now suddenly anti-marriage. We've had like kind of Edward's and Raj and Sarah's wedding yesterday. So we had this wedding of weddings. Right, that's it. Finished. <laughs> no more. We're not saying that. Okay, it's not for all of you, but for some of you, it could well be the case that Jesus is calling you to be freed up from any of these tight family commitments to a radical life by being single, maybe for an extended period of time, maybe for the rest of your life, and He'll give you grace for that if that's the case. In a sense, this isn't something that I can prescribe for you. The specifics are not the same for everyone. What... what I've done is uh, I've kind of been forced into this position a little bit of me and Gemma have talked about this a little bit in the last two weeks (laughs) I didn't want to hear that she's not here today so I probably could have got away with this but to hear from people oh you know Johnny's text was hate your wife and children I didn't want to hear that on the grapevine I wanted that to come from me and so so we talked what what does this mean what does Jesus mean here we had to put these difficult conversations actually be honest with you difficult how does that look what is that how do I how does that affect how I treat the kids how does that affect how you treat me we want to be honest to Jesus. I'd encourage you, if you're married here, this is a hard one to avoid, actually, if you're a spouse here, talk to your spouse about this. What does it mean to apply the teaching, radical teaching of the Bible, to love each other, yes, but to love each other like this? What does it mean for us in our relationship at the moment in general? If you're single here, I'd encourage you to seek out someone in leadership in the church, a deacon at your site, and be a life group leader, and discuss how the church can help you live out your singleness in a way that frees you up to live more radically for Jesus. Talk about your struggles. Seek accountability for those things, but also offer your services. There are things that you can do that married people cannot do, actually. You're a massive gift to the church if you're single, and that might be for a period of time. It might be for an extended period of time. Start those discussions. We need to talk these things through, okay? So the first is in relation to our family. Secondly, in relationship to to our possessions. Verse 31, uh, jumping to the end of the passage. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. You know what? Jesus really does want us to give everything away we own. He really does. He wants us to give it to him. And at the very least that means to recognise that it's all, everything I have is on loan from him and he can take it any moment he wants. He can do it forcibly actually. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes disaster something. oh what happened? Well actually Jesus was taking back. what well, you didn't want to give. But he wants us to do it's on loan from him, it's all his. We've given it away in our hearts. But we can't just give it away in our hearts. say, it's, oh, it's all his but actually it's not really all his. No, it must mean that we live differently. It must mean it, otherwise we're not being sincere. And I've got a kind of question I think helps with this, and I think this is helpful. I take this as a standard, I would. Um, imagine that you were to tell someone who's not a Christian how much you give away of your money and stuff. Um, my question would be this. Do they think you're absolutely crazy? That's my question. Just define a couple of terms, and thereby give away. I don't mean like birthday presents, are you going to get something back? I mean giving to charity, giving to the church, giving to friends in need, where you're not expecting anything back. And just to clarify, by crazy, I don't mean impressed. People are impressed by some charity. Oh, that's really kind, you're such a nice person. You know I mean, if you were to tell someone who's not in the church about the generosity of your I'm not saying you should, but if you were, would they be like, What? What are you doing? Do I need to call social services at this point? This is this is what you're doing is almost immoral, because that's how a materialistic society thinks about what Jesus is teaching here. Would they think you're crazy? If the answer to that question is no, I would humbly suggest that you're not living out the Bible's clear teaching on money and possessions. In a culture as obsessed with stuff as ours. Disciples of Jesus should not just be a little less attached to our money and possessions. We should be playing a completely different ball game. It might, for some of us, involve literally giving everything away. You know, I've thought about that sentence in this talk quite a lot because I've thought, well, what happens then if someone comes next week and goes, Johnny, really enjoyed the sermon. I've just given it all away, everything. What now? What do I do now? I still don't know what I'd say at at that point. But you know what? I'm ready for that and well he's saying? reckless how could you ever be reckless like that because Jesus was reckless like that Jesus left that possibility open because Jesus was more prepared to face the danger of well what's going to happen now you don't have anything what will you do for your next meal rather than the danger of you cannot love both God and money because he knew the other danger was far worse and we're much closer to the other danger third thing uh, and final thing here is then also in relation to our desires and needs verse 30 those who mourn as if they did not those who are happy as if they were not this is like the banner i think over all of this is that we need to truly learn what it is to cut the ties with our own desires and preferences and i think while this seems like the easiest this is the hardest one to do of all and it's over the whole lot we must not live to chase after what makes us happy I think that's what this is saying. We must not live to avoid what makes us mourn. We must not live for comfort, leisure, enjoyment. We must hate even our own lives. Again, in our culture, would would completely not understand that. That's not nearly what's being said. It's the opposite of what's being said. Happiness is the truth, isn't it? We, all, we can sing it. Happiness is the truth. Happiness is not the truth. We don't live for those things anymore. We hate even our own lives. This isn't a super discipleship. This isn't the type of discipleship that God expects from Bible heroes. This is the only type of discipleship Jesus knew. So my challenge as we finish is the same as Jesus is in the passage. Do you want to be my disciple? Are you in? Some of you at the moment are part of the crowd. The people Jesus is talking primarily to here, you're interested in Jesus, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. The question for you today is, are you in? Do you want to follow this Jesus? You know what it is. You know, it's all laid out before you. Do you, to, do you want to follow him? Do you want to be his disciple? To use the illustration, first illustration of this passage, you now know the cost of the following Jesus tower. Looking at the project. There's a project. There's a tower here. i want to build. What will this cost me? This is what it will cost you. It will cost you everything you've got. You know that. And I'll ask you do you want to start building that tower? Do you want to be his disciple? Most of you, I guess, would already class yourself in that category. And the question then is, do you still want to be his disciple? Anyone listening to this? In an objective, removing yourself from the equation might say, why would anyone in their right mind say yes to either of those questions? I mean, Jesus is not going to win when he comes back any kind of double glazing jobs, is he? He's not going to sell timeshares. His hard sell isn't like the easy way to get this sort of stuff. Why would you follow this? I want to finish then by giving the reason why I want to be his disciple and why I think you should as well. And it's the reason given by Peter in John 6. Because in John chapter 6, uh, Jesus has been, he, he does this a lot. You might have noticed this in Luke. If you're getting to know a different Jesus from the one you thought was there in Luke's gospel, good. Because this is the only Jesus. But in John 6, he's doing stuff like this. his hard sayings. And it says there was too much for some of them. And uh, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so Jesus turns to the 12 disciples. John six sixty-seven. He says, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Well, look at Peter's response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Why would anyone in their right mind want to give up all their possessions, their desires and even risk others thinking they hate their family? It's because we get Jesus. That's why? And it's an absolute fantastic deal. You get the Holy One of God. You get to be his friend. You get to walk beside him get to fight battles at his side. get to know one day you'll be with him forever and all the mystery all the confusion will go. You don't have to look at a world that's broken anymore. You'll see what it's like because you won't just know what the truth was, the, the facts. You won't just see the matrix. You'll know the one it's all about. You get Jesus. And in such a situation, even the hardest sacrifice is punctuated with joy because knowing Jesus is joy. And so I couldn't give you a better offer this morning than the discipleship with Jesus. I couldn't. Is it free? Well, it didn't cost you any money, if that's what you were. I know. not I'm not going to charge a, a fee today, but it costs you everything, absolutely everything. Be under no illusion. My question then is, it's to you now. What choice are you going to make? Can we close your eyes and pray? I, I think that it would be fair to say that this talk probably demands a response. Um, this is tough, guys. Let's be under no illusion here. i would be honest. I'd love, I'd love to to soften this for you. I really would. I'd love to, I'll be honest, I'd love to soften this for me. But I can't do it. And I want to ask you, and you, you might think it's an odd question. Do you still want to be his disciple? The question actually might be, Do you want to stop being his disciple? Because you've just been in the crowd for a long time wearing a badge. But Jesus is here now and he's asking the question. Holy Spirit, I I ask you now gently, graciously, God, you see the beginning from the end, Lord. You know the the riches, the incomparable riches of your grace, Lord. And you know the, the absolute rubbish that we fill our lives with so often. Lord, that we think is so important. God, you know, the good things that we understand are important but think are more important, they are. Lord, I pray you give us wisdom and you give us boldness and you give us courage, not just to make a response now, but to live out that response and to really glorify you, Lord God. Lord Jesus. I want to ask um, for a physical response. from people, this isn't the kind of thing, necessarily, I'm not saying everyone stand up, those people are going to think you're you're not a Christian I'm saying if God's spoken to you today if you want to say look I want to nail my colors to the mast uh, today if maybe for the first time in your life say I want to follow him I'm going for that Jesus or maybe you just recognize I want to live that radical form of Christianity I've been a Christian but I've not been a Christian like that before I'd ask you to stand now I'd like to pray for you